0: Anybody in here lift weights much? I'm two pounders? Okay. I had mentioned uh, before we started singing that I was calling you to a muscular Christianity this morning. What do you do? There's there's really two different ways, two different methods when you're lifting weights. Low weight, high reps does what? Endurance, definition. When you start lifting heavy stuff, what starts happening? Start bulking up, right? And do you know what the process is when you're lifting weights? You're actually ripping your muscle. I'm talking about getting ripped, swole, swole like me. When you lift heavy stuff, you're actually tearing your muscle so that it rebuilds. And when it rebuilds, it rebuilds bigger than it was. Right? Now, question. Is that fun? Now, some people it is. There are people who enjoy that. There's a guy that I went to school with. He's a year older than me. It's forty. He's 42. He'll turn 43 this year. And he just recently started lifting weights, like Olympic-type stuff. And he's not going to the Olympics but he, all he talks about is how much he enjoys it. And there's something wrong with this guy. Because, I, I, I mean, he's posting pictures, you know, you've got this thing going on. And, you know, it's, what is it, clean snatch and jerk, clean jerk? I don't know. I don't know. Way out of my league there. But he really, really enjoys it. Do you think he always enjoyed it? I don't think so. I'm thinking it was really hard i think it hurt, and I'm thinking there was a call for endurance. I say that because what we're going to get into this morning in Romans is not any easier than what we just left in Romans. You know what we're doing with this stuff in Romans? We're not doing low weight high reps. We're doing heavy weights. We're doing hard I mean, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that. What we're talking about, this this stuff is hard. It's hard to understand. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to stay meditating on it because you just get to a point where you're like, I don't get it, I'm just going to stop. And it's even harder to implement into our lives. So I'm calling you again, as we start the message, into endurance. I'm calling you this morning into hard work. I'm calling this morning to think. Let me tell you what, America, as a nation, I'm afraid we just don't think anymore. Watch this election stuff going on. Tell me if we're thinking or not. I'm serious. We want whatever's quick, whatever's easy. Just give it to me now. Give me the most pragmatic thing you can give me so that I can be done with this and move on to the next thing. That's not what we're doing in Romans. We're doing the heavy lifting. And we'll be, until we get, not that chapter 12 is any less heavy, but chapter 12 is really application. Until we get to chapter 12, I'm going to challenge you to think. I'm going to challenge you to meditate. I'm going to challenge you to pick up the heavy weights. And if you're not excited about it right now, you kind of get excited when you start to see some results. <laughs> There's this guy that delivers some parts to us at work. He's a big fella, and he's talking about lifting weights. He kind of reminds me of Will Smith. Um, anywho, uh, he came, and like he's our li- and like, a big guy. He's probably, I don't know, he's probably 6'2", 6'3", big. Well, he started lifting weights. And you know what happened? he started to really want me to know that he's lifting weights. So he started talking about the equipment that he bought to lift weights with. He started talking about how his equipment was set up out in his garage, how he insulated his garage so that he got there when it was cold. And then that day came when he finally did this. Check this out. I kid you not. Dude flexed for me and said, look at that. He got to the point to where the results he wanted to show people all the talking, all the work, and he still got work to do, but he started to see a change. What I'm asking you for this morning is work hard, and when you start to see the change, and you will, it is worth it, and you're going to want to tell everybody about it, even if it means walking up and going, eh, that's not what we're going for this morning. We're not going for biceps this morning. We're going for strengthening your heart muscle. And in the process, we might have to rip it apart. And your brain muscle. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. Please endure with us. Engage with us. It is worth it. Okay? Everybody on board? Anybody want to leave now? Want me to flex for you? You might say, no, go ahead and flex. I'm like, I am flexing. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Now, let's stay back here for a second. We are still in the section, our third point of our outline. We'll get to that in a second. We'll show the outline. But we're in blessings, the results of being right with God. And what we're going to read this morning, again, is a bigger paragraph. I put this on Facebook last night. You just have to do this with these passages. I could give you the first four verses this morning, which is what we'll focus on. But if you don't have the context of it, it's not going to help you much. So we're going to read verses 1 through 14 until we finish 1 through 14, which will probably be two or three weeks. And I want us to get this in our heads and our hearts and get ready. Get in position. Because it's, it's going to be good, but it's going to be heavy lifting. If you would stand while we read the Scripture. Stand out of reverence to By the way, we're probably headed toward like Easter with this passage. Sorry. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions." Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for, un- for righteousness. Sorry. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let me pray. Ooh, God, that is, that's good stuff. I thank you for your Word. I thank you for your Spirit that makes that Word accessible to us. And God, I pray that that word would operate in this place and in these people this morning to the point that saved people will repent, saved people will rejoice, and that unsaved people will repent, and unsaved people will rejoice in your salvation. Holy Spirit, please help us to understand, and then help us to do what we understand we know we should do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. We're going to jump straight in here. Here's our outline. We saw through chapter 3, verse 20, that everybody's a sinner. Everybody that's ever been conceived has a need to be made right with God. Point two, justification by faith is the means for being right with God. There is no other way. Period. Justification by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only way that people are saved. And it's a gift of God's grace so that He might get all the glory. Now, once you're justified... We come into where we're at now, getting right near the middle of this third point, which is blessings, the results of being right with God. Now, you want to talk about blessings. We're going to see the very front door of these blessings as we look at chapter 6 today. And we're going to start reminding ourselves of what? Asian station, expiation, God removing the guilt of our sin from us, taking it away from us, exiting Guilt and sin, expiation, propitiation was God putting that guilt and shame and that sin upon the person of Christ and venting His wrath against that sin on Jesus instead of on us. That's propitiation. Imputation was God giving us the very righteousness of Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinned. We also saw an imputation that we were imputed Adam's unrighteousness because of his sin, which led us to being justified, justification, I have the right to stand in God's presence, and one day, finally, we will. We are saved. We have been saved. We are saved, and we will be saved. This leads us to salvation. Now, I'm going to put an Asian in here today. I'm going to add an Asian to Asian Station, and it is sanctification. Now, don't get too out of whack about the position of sanctification before salvation we'll touch on today, you don't have to be fully sanctified to be saved. Okay? Justification happened, and we'll get into this in the message. Once we are justified, we begin the process of sanctification. Justification is right standing with God. Sanctification is just what we talked about for the music. It's the subjective experience of the truth that has been worked in our lives. It's our becoming more and more like Christ throughout our lives. That's what sanctification is. How many of you were here back at the beginning of Providence? Six. few of us. I actually... Uh, that was one of the messages that I got to preach in our foundations class was the message on sanctification. I would encourage you, if you can find that, to go back and find that and listen to it. Not because it was me, but because it talks about sanctification in full-on frontal view. So, uh, But... What we're going to move from is the objective truth of justification into the subjective experience of sanctification with chapter 6. That's the corner that we're turning. And we'll barely turn that corner today. But sanctification. And we'll talk about that today. So let's start with verse 1 here. What shall we say then? I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So our first verse starts with a question. What shall we say then? Now that phrase is a transition expression and it's a debater's phrase. Anybody ever do any debating? Any training in debating in here? No? That surprises me. This is a transition phrase. It's after you've presented your case and you say, okay, now what do we say about what we just stated? So Paul, who was... More than Well, we know that he was trained in the rabbinical schools. And what they would do in those rabbinical schools was, questions were propounded and the students were encouraged to debate back and forth, objections being suddenly interposed and answered. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's built a case and then he asks a question. Now Paul's been engaged in the art of debate since this book started. And he's steadily building that case. And here, he introduces and he answers a possible objection to what he said. And what was that objection that he's talking about? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, why is he asking this? John Piper says, if you don't ask the question posed in 6.1, you didn't get chapter 5. So what was said in chapter 5? Remember back at the end of chapter 5, Paul said, the law came in so that what? Sin would increase and then said that where sin abounded grace abounded all the more. Now you can hear his detractors asking the question, which is a logical question. Well, if God sent the law to increase sin so that grace could abound, shouldn't we sin so that we can receive more grace and therefore give more glory to God? That's logical, right? You're thinking, well, that's that's preposterous. That's crazy. But is it? I mean, really, think about it. And again, I'm asking you to think. If God is glorified by showing us grace and we want God's glory above everything else, isn't His grace shown out all the clearer by our sinning? I mean, is that way off base? Anybody ever heard of Rasputin? Gregory Rasputin? I just wanted to say that with that roll of my tongue there. Rasputin was a Russian monk, and he was a faith healer and a mystic. And the Tsar, T-S-A-R, the czar's wife, the Tsar was, uh, what was the czar? Nicholas II. Good job. Tsar Nicholas II had a wife, and his wife kind of got caught up with Rasputin. She was enamored with him. And she kind of brought him in, and he became their personal teacher, and he really dominated him. He really kind of lorded over them with his spiritual authority. Let me tell you what he taught. It would have been early 1900s, like 1915-ish. Rasputin taught that salvation came through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. He argued that because those who sin more require more forgiveness, those who sin with abandon will, as they repent, experience greater joy. Therefore, Rasputin taught... It is the believer's duty to sin, and at times, this kind of thinking got intellectualized, and it can be you can categorize it. Here's a big long word as antinomianism. Anti is no, you know, nomos is law, so antinomianism is no law. And you think, well, that can't happen. But let me tell you what, this is a teaching that's out there. There's no law now. We can do whatever we want to do. We can sin whenever we want to sin. God will forgive us anyway. And He's glorified in forgiving us. Now, it's easy to stand here right now and throw stones at that thought pattern, but have you ever had the thought when you were facing the choice to sin, eh, God will forgive me if I do it? Anybody? Yeah, I can do this. God'll forgive me. He's not gonna be mad at me. He loves me. He's a good, good father. And that's true. And that's antinomianism. There's really no there's I know there's a law against it, but I'm not under law, I'm under grace. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Antinomianism. So we can say Rasputin was crazy, but our subjective experience is we do this. We rationalize our sin and say, well, God will forgive me anyway. I know I shouldn't, but if I do, God will forgive me for it. And it's very easy to fall into this line of thinking. It's very easy. What am I asking you into this morning, though? Am I asking you into easy? You mean to smack the pulpit and say no? No, I'm not calling you into easy this morning. I'm calling you into hard. It's easy to say, well, I can just sin because God will forgive me very easy to fall into this thinking. And Paul knows it, even to the extent that not only can we sin and be forgiven, but people will actually believe that God is actually glorified in our sin because His grace is seen as powerful toward us when we sin. And that leads us to do what the verse suggests, which is to continue in sin. With this line of thinking, we continue in sin, we live in sin, we dwell in sin, we stew in sin. So what does the Holy Spirit say through Paul in response to this hypothesis. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? So what's Paul's reaction? Let me tell you what it is. Let me, let me tell you the connotation to this phrase, by no means. It's disgust. R.C. Sproul called it apostolic abhorrence. This is not just a no statement, but the phrase, by no means, can be translated, may it never be, of course not, God forbid, no, 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 or even what a ghastly thought. You could equate it to, I love my wife. Well, if my wife should die... I love my wife so much, I don't want to bury her. I want to keep her with me. What a ghastly thought. Anybody want to live with a corpse? But I love my wife. That's logical, right? I don't want to be separated from her. Well, if she's dead, I should be separated from her, right? You're like, well, I can kind of see the sentimentality of keeping a dead person around. I mean, you do love her, And the thought pattern here is, what a ghastly thought. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What a ghastly thought. What a disgusting suggestion you just made. The thought of it is abominable to Paul. It has the feel of an impossibility because it is. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now what does that mean? What does it mean to have died to sin? The word for died here in the English means died. That's revolutionary, isn't it? That's deep Greek thinking there. Died means died. How can we who died to sin, how can we who ceased to be alive to sin, how can we who became unresponsive to sin still live in it? Dead to sin, not in sin, not living in sin, but how? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Now you want to talk about something that's going to take some muscle. You want to talk about something that's going to take some wrestling wrestling with. We live in southern West Virginia. We call it wrestling. We're going to wrestle with this this morning. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Now, here's the nuts and bolts of all of this. Here's where the truth of representation from the last paragraph of chapter 5, remember? Representation, imputation. This is where we start to see that in action. It's one thing to be represented by Adam's disobedience back when he sinned. And to be represented by Christ in His act of obedience. That's what they did. But it's a whole other thing to be associated with Jesus in the here and now. In me. In my subjective experience. That's a whole different ball of wax. Because Adam is kind of hypothetical to us. Even Jesus' act of obedience is kind of hypothetical to us. But what's happening here is Paul's bringing it down into my life and he's making it about me. My life is not hypothetical. My life is not some distant ethereal thing. It's right here. And that's exactly what's happening. He's bringing this down to me. Look at this verse. Do you not know is actually a very strong statement with the meaning of are you ignorant? Leaning more toward, how can you be so ignorant, so as not to know? That's literally what he's saying there. Know what? To know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death, and this is the key that unlocks the door to this paragraph. Please hear me. Get ready. Put your belt on your your, your weightlifting belt. Brace yourself because this is the key to the paragraph. It is essential that we know how to handle this clause that all who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. It is imperative that we understand that phrase. So the statement is about those who have been justified by faith in Christ. That's the all who have been part. Believers, Christians, the redeemed. And then that word baptized, and that phrase baptized into Christ. Oh my. First, this is not speaking of water baptism. Let me explain that. Baptism as a sacrament, as I'm, you know, when I think baptism now, I think about being at Alpine, right? That's where we've baptized people predominantly since we've been here. So that's where my mind goes when I hear baptism. Baptism is a very important step of obedience that shows those around us, testifies to the world that something magnificent has happened in us and to us. Let me be very clear though. When I say that water baptism saves no one, baptismal regeneration, which is saying you're born again once you are baptized, is a doctrine that says if you have not been baptized, you're not born again. And to that I say, pshaw. It's rubbish. A.T. Robertson says, it should be said also that a symbol is not the reality, but it's a picture of the reality. So when we talk about water baptism, what we're talking about is not just a symbol, It's so much more than that. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's not the actual act of what happened to us. Let me explain that a little more. The verse is not about getting dunked underwater, as important as that is. John MacArthur says this verse is dry. I love that. He goes on to quote one writer who says that the introduction... Now listen, please listen, regarding baptism. The introduction or placing of a person, place or thing, into a new environment. Let me, let me take that middle clause out of that. The introduction or placing of a person into a new environment or into union with something else so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment is the best definition of the Greek word baptizo, which is what we're looking at here. I need to read that again, and you need to get that. Listen, please listen. Baptism is the introduction or placing of a person into union with something else so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment. It is putting us, baptism is putting us into a new environment. It is putting us in a new union, in a new relationship with new conditions, all different. And that's not what water baptism does. This baptism here, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, this is referencing our being placed in Christ. He is our new environment. We are in union with Him, and that alters our condition and our relationship to our previous environment. Now, that's a lot. Okay, stay with me. One instance in Scripture that shows this a little better is 1 Corinthians 10. Let me give you an example of what this looks like as far as baptism not being water baptism. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now come back to this Moses thing. All of their forefathers, the Jews, were baptized into Moses. Now does that mean that they got dunked in water? No. The answer to that question is no. Moses didn't say, okay, everybody come down to this river. I'm going to dunk you in water so that you can be in me. And again, sounds preposterous, but I want you to understand this. I want you to, to grasp this fully. All were baptized into Moses. And what happened when they were They were in the cloud, in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food. Their environment changed. Their relationship changed. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So their experience changed when they became one with Moses. Their union was with Moses. Moses was the head of the nation, so to speak, and they all became part of that nation that was symbolized by Moses. Are you with me? It's real important that you are with me right now. It says "It says here, and baptism here means to come under the authority of Moses, to participate in the Mosaic leadership, to participate in the Mosaic privilege, to participate in the Mosaic blessing, so that what we are looking at here in Romans refers to that which God did in Jesus' life so that it reached to the people who followed him. Let me give you another illustration. Because again, I'm going to belabor this because I want you to get it. I want you to understand what this baptism means. Anybody ever make pickles in here? Okay, that's more than I thought (laughs) I'd say that. Both of you. The clearest example, and this is from... I don't remember, I I didn't make the notation here. Who who wrote this? I think it was Boyce. James Montgomery Boyce, I think. The clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo, which is the word back in 6.3, is a text from the Greek poet and physician, Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C. And what he said was, it's a recipe for making pickles. And it's helpful because it uses both words for baptism, which are babto and baptizo. Nikander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, babto, into boiling water and then baptized, baptizo, in the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution, but the first is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, produces a permanent change. When used in the New Testament, this word more often refers to our union and identification with Christ than to our water baptism. Mark sixteen sixteen. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He's not talking about getting wet there. He's talking about being in union with Christ. He that believes and is in union with Christ shall be saved. Christ is saying that mere intellectual assent is not enough. There must be a union with Him there must be a real change like a cucumber becoming a pickle. And what makes that cucumber the pickle? Was it the dip in the salt water? Or was it the permanent placing of it in the vinegar solution? If you just put it in the salt water, you got a salty cucumber. If you dip it in the vinegar solution and leave it there, it becomes a pickle. I never once in my life thought I'd be using pickle making as an illustration in anything that I ever did in my life. But it's really good. And in our case, it's flip-flopped. In the pickle making, they dipped it in the salt water and then left it in the vinegar. What happens when we are baptized into Christ is we are placed in Christ and we stay there. Never to be removed and it changes who we are. We're not a cucumber anymore. We're a pickle. You're like, what? I'm sure there's some old hymn that references pickling. I'm just sure of it. Somebody find me the hymn that references pickling. Pickled in Jesus. Maybe there's not. So our, our order is different than the pickle thing. We get immersed in Christ and then we get dipped in the water. Does that make sense? So pickles. So we're baptizoed, then we're baptode. Our water baptism is a temporary act and immersing into the water, then coming out of it. But our baptism into Christ is complete, total, and permanent. We are immersed in Christ, permanently taking up residence in Him and with Him forever. It is a permanent change. And let me tell you what, that is fantastic news. That's why Paul could say when we were baptized or immersed into Christ, we were baptized into His death. Now listen, Christian. When you became a believer, when you were born again, you were placed in Christ to the extent... Please, 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 please hear me say this. You were placed in Christ to the extent that His experience became your experience. Now, here comes that representation truth again, that imputation truth again. But here, it means that what is true of Jesus is true of us. And get this, now listen, what happened to Jesus in the past actually happened to us. What? We have been placed in Christ to the extent that what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago happened to us. Hmm. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, He died to sin. Now we'll see this more clearly in verse 10 when we get to it, but it, it needs to be seen here. For the death He died, Jesus, He died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, lives to God. That's, that is huge. But think about this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the sins of all the redeemed of all time were placed upon Him. And when He died, sin lost its power over Him. He died. Now, by implication, back in our verse... Did I put it back up? I am not that smart. Sorry. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So by implication here, the Holy Spirit through Paul says that Jesus' experience then is your experience now. You died with Him then. And you are dead to sin now. Now, does that hurt your head? You're going what? That's hard. I'm telling you, that's hard. And I'm going to promise you one thing: you're not going to wrestle and gra- wrestle and grapple with this mentally to the point where you say, "Okay, now I understand that." You died with him then, and you are dead to sin now. But how? Come back to representation. Come back to imputation. It's the system that God set up, remember? We were identified with Adam when he sinned and we were identified with Christ when he was obedient. God set up a system based on representation. I cannot hope to explain by words the truth of our shared life which implies our shared death with Christ. I can't hope to explain that to you. I can only hope and pray for the miracle of revelation and illumination as the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God and applies it to our hearts, our minds, and our lives. And when He does, what happens? We start to live in it. We start to experience it. The objective truth becomes subjective experience. Next verse. Let me go past all this other stuff. Now look at this next verse, and this is where we'll finish today. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, what happens? We stay dead? We too, T-O-O, might walk in newness of life. Which means what? Which mean, oh, Let me not jump ahead of myself. I just want to jump into that part. Let's wait. We start a transition here from justification and imputation to what we talked about earlier, into sanctification. We will start in this verse talking about how the death of Christ leads us to the life of Christ, which affects the life that we live today and into our future. Everything prior to this has talked about our standing before God based on a past act of obedience by the man, Jesus, the Christ. What we will be talking about in this next section is about how this right standing with God affects our walk now. Hear me plainly and clearly, please. Justification was a one-time judicial act that occurred in the believers past. It's a judicial pronouncement. Not guilty. The gavel has fallen. Not just not guilty, but righteous, right standing, justified in Christ. That happened in our past if we are Christians. It was a gift of grace from God Himself so that God Himself gets all the glory for it. You did not work for it, you did not earn it, and you did not deserve it. It was a once and for all thing. That was justification. So, how should that work itself out into your present and future life? That is sanctification. And it is an ongoing journey that we will walk in and continue in until we see Jesus face to face. Sanctification, listen, 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 listen. Sanctification has nothing to do with earning our salvation. Sanctification has nothing to do with trying to get God to love you more. It's all about the life of Christ being worked into and out through our lives. That's what sanctification is. And it's rooted and grounded in the past act of justification. Being immersed into Christ. That happened when you were born again. That was a really weak snap. That's better. It's imperative to understand that going forward. So, with this in mind... We saw our death with Christ in verse 3. And here we see that we were not only dead with Him, we were buried with Him. Again, His experience became our experience. By our union, our immersion, our baptism into Him, into death. And why? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We died with Him we were buried with him that is not hypothetical that happened jesus christ was a person who walked the earth he died he was buried they laid him in the tomb and what the holy spirit is telling us here is that so did we we died with christ we were placed in the tomb with christ that happened you say That was two thousand years ago. I was born in nineteen seventy-three. How could I have shared his experience? That's what we're going to work out through the rest of this paragraph, and it's hard. It's not a surface thing where you go, "Okay, I got that." Let's go into the next thing. It's not hypothetical. It was true experience. It happened by God's doing due to our union with Jesus. Listen, when we were born again, we died. First and foremost, death always precedes life in the kingdom of God. The death has to come to end us. Our old lives had to end. They had to stop. They had to cease. They had to finish. Because why? Because we were under the bondage of sin. God had to do away with that and the best way He could do that was killing us. Placing us in Christ so that His death was our death. And this is going to come out beautifully in Romans 7, by the way. Just beautifully. And in the same instance, when we died, we got buried. We got put in the grave with Jesus and we were raised from the dead with Jesus. That is so much bigger than we can ever dare to think. And we're going to unfold that through the rest of the paragraph. This is both mystical and tangible. This is both practical and miraculous. Now what caused this rising with Christ? Christ's rising, our rising with Christ? Look at this verse. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by what? Okay, what we're going to do is, we're going to read this together. We're going to start with, just as Christ was raised from the dead, and then I want you to give me emphasis from by to Father. Are you ready? We're going to read this together. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Did you hear yourself? Did you hear what you just said? Did you hear what the Holy Spirit just said? (laughs) The glory of the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and as such, raised you from the dead. This is a nod to the fact that it is God Himself who is the mastermind and the power source for all of this. I'll say it again. It is God who set this whole thing up. And He set it up in such a way that it is marvelous. He set it up in such a way that He gets all the glory for it. And it was His glory displayed when Jesus walked out of His grave. You guys that watched the movie Friday night, what happened? Jesus stay in the grave? You guys that didn't watch the movie Friday night, what happened? (laughs) Jesus didn't stay in the grave. And get this. It was His glory that was on display when Jesus walked out of the grave. Now listen. It's His glory that is on display when we recognize our co-resurrection with Christ and when we do what? When we walk in newness of life. This is what sanctification is all about. We begin to walk differently. And walk being how we conduct our lives. We begin to conduct our lives differently. Our course is adjusted. Our heart is changed. And we begin to walk in the very power of God. Doing the very works of God. What Jesus would say, greater works than He did while He was on the earth. And listen, and God gets all the glory as He is shown to be triumphant over sin, death, hell, the grave, and the world in and through us, in and through our lives, in and through my life. Holy cow, how huge is that? God has chosen to put His glory on display through victorious Christians who walk in newness of life based on their co-death, co-burial, and co-resurrection with Christ. God has put His glory on the line so that your life might show Him. And He's given His very power to make it happen. You were baptized into Christ. Immersed in union with Christ to the point that when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. When Jesus was resurrected, you were resurrected so that you might walk in newness of life, so that your subjective experience might match up with the objective truth that God is glorious. That's why you were saved. That's what being baptized into Christ is all about. You died with Him. And that's fantastic news. You were buried with Him. That's fantastic news. And you were raised with Him. That is unbelievable news. Does your life reflect that? You're like, oh, here comes the guilt injection. No, no guilt whatsoever. It's hope. It's joy because your life can reflect that. Your life was designed to reflect that by the very power of God Himself. Four points of application as we finish this morning. In your Christian life, two things you need to avoid in response to this word. You need to avoid antinomianism. You need to avoid a life that is marked by lawlessness. God doesn't care if I do this because He's going to forgive me for it. Don't live that way. Sin is awful. It's bad. We painted that picture back in chapter 5 verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, 6.66 trillion tons bad. Remember that? Sin is awful. Do not live a life of lawlessness. Don't do it. It's one thing to avoid in that first point. The second thing to avoid in that same point is legalism, which is trying to keep the law to make God happy. They're ugly twin sisters, legalism and antinomianism. Why sisters? I'm sorry if that offended any ladies in here. They're ugly twin... What's ugly? What's something that's ugly? Naked mole rats. How's that? I don't know what you do with that, Andrew. (laughs) Legalism and lawlessness are ugly twins. Avoid them both. Don't try to keep the law to make God happier or to make God love you more. That's legalism. And don't say, you know what? God doesn't care if I sin or not. That's lawlessness. Don't be either of those people. Don't be either of those naked mole rats because they're ugly. Quick aside. There was a big old possum in the road this morning as we're driving to church, and it would not move. It was laying there going. Wouldn't move. I hope it wasn't hurt. I think it was playing possum. Don't be an ugly possum in the middle of the road." I don't know. That was the first application point. Avoid both legalism and lawlessness. Second point. Baptism is important. The sacrament, the act of being baptized. Water baptism is important. I don't mean to negate it. I don't mean to minimize it this morning. It's just not what this verse is talking about. Baptism is important. If you are a Christian, If you are a believer, if you've been born again to a living hope in Christ Jesus, if you've been baptized into Christ, you need to get in the water and be baptized. It's very important. It's not just a symbol. It's an act of obedience. To proclaim to the world, something has happened in me and I want to show all the world this picture of what happened to me. I died with Christ and I was raised to new life. If you have not been baptized... As a believer, you should be. Second application point. Third one. And this one is probably the the very central message of these four verses. Listen. Imputation. We know is the basis of our justification. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. But hear me say this. Imputation is also the basis of our sanctification. Your death with Christ is the first step in understanding how you should now live in Christ. You were given the very righteousness of Christ objectively. Sanctification makes that truth true. Sorry, you were given it objectively. Sanctification now makes that true subjectively. And you... Walk in newness of life based on the finished work of Christ, based on the very power of Christ alive in your life. You have been given the very life of Christ. That's how you proceed in sanctification. Not by trying harder, not by biting your lip, not by pinching yourself when you sin. Snapping a rubber band. Oh, I did it again. It's not behavior modification. That's not what sanctification is. Sanctification is the very life of Christ being lived out in you. So if it's not based on imputation, we're going to fail. But we have been baptized into Christ. We are hidden with Him. And our relationship to our old environment has changed. And as such, we can walk in newness of life based on imputation. Sanctification is based on imputation. Or it doesn't work. That was point three. Last point. I'm going to come back to what we started with in the music, what we started with in the message. Listen to me. Apply this. Last application point. I want you to work hard to understand this. I want you to pray hard to understand this. I want you to read this passage and reread this passage. I'm talking 6, 1 through 14. I want you to make it such a part of your life, and I want you to get on your face and beg God, please help me understand this. Because if you don't, I'm never going to get it. I want you to labor in the power of the Spirit who resides in you to believe God about your co-death with Christ. Because it's not logical. It's not easy. Wrestle with it. Come into the very throne room of God and say, I am not letting you go until you bless me. Do what Martin Luther talked about. Martin Luther said he beat importunately upon the door of Romans. I will wrestle with this. I will understand this or I will die. Because here's the thing. I'll finish with this. It is a matter of life and death in your Christian life. Avoid legalism and lawlessness. Be baptized with water baptism. Understand that your sanctification comes out of imputation. And the last point again, work hard to understand this. Beg God to help you understand this. It's very important. And we'll look at it more over the next two, three weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday, which is really pretty exciting. Let's pray. God sometimes we've got to drop the weight. Sometimes we've got to just say I can't do it. Right now I can't do any more. I can't can't take this in. And I think you're all right with that. But I don't think you're all right with us just leaving it and never coming back to it. I believe you call us to tarry to wrestle to labor to understand these truths. And again, God, we've just barely cracked the door open this morning. I pray that in these coming weeks, God, that you would give us great light through the power of your Spirit to make the reality of these passages realities in our everyday lives. And may we know that our labor is not in vain. May we know that you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. God, may we come hungry and may we leave satisfied until we get hungry again. Holy Spirit, please help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us for a benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Please stay and eat with us if you can.